One, two. The Lord be with you. So good to see you this morning. I'll invite you to find your chair if you've lost it. I promise it'll still be there when you get back. Uh, good to see you this morning. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew, and I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East. It's a joy to have you in our midst. You say, what is New Life East? It's one of eight congregations of New Life Church, uh, which meets, we meet all across uh, Colorado Springs, uh, Pikes Peak region, and worship, connect, and serve is kind of our mantra. And so we gather in here at various places throughout the city on Sundays to worship Jesus and we connect with one another in spaces like this and in homes throughout the week. And then we serve one another and we serve in our city. That's what we're all about. So it's a joy to have you in our midst. We believe that this is a community that the Spirit is putting together to be a community of love following Jesus. So be sure to see us after the service. We've got a little gift for you. Like Pastor Rory said, we'd love to meet you. Um, I'm so happy to be with you this morning. I spent the last uh, few days in Denver with Mandy. I uh, was leading a little pastor's conference there, about 80 or so pastors from across the country, uh, gathering just to talk about ministry and how we do ministry in a wholehearted way. And uh, I did ministry in Denver for about eight years, uh, left five and a half years ago. It was so fun to be back there this week, sharing with them out of all the things that we're learning together as a community and experiencing together. And so I want you to know uh, that whenever I leave, I carry New Life East in my heart. You guys are very, very close to the center of our affection and our desire. So it's a great thing just to be part of a community. We have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, this month. All We're going to be doing this all the way up until Easter Sunday. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open in them to the book of Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to start at verse 27. And just a quick recap on the Sermon on the Mount. This is really... Jesus' kind of formative teaching for his disciples on what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. What does God actually require? And so he opens with these beautiful things that we know as the Beatitudes, the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, where what Jesus does inside those Beatitudes is he changes our eyes, baptizes our imagination so that we can see life the way that it really is under the reign of God and Christ. So first what he does because he gives us new eyes to see. And secondly, what he does is he starts talking about how God actually wants to make us a people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world in a city set on a hill. And he does that by changing our hearts. You'll remember that Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And the way that we have a surpassing righteousness is we let God into the depths of our soul, where our motivations and our desires spring from. If God can take up residence in that place, then he can get a hold of our lives. And then last week, we began to move into this uh, next phase of Jesus' teaching, where he takes some of the commands of the Old Testament and he presses them deeper. He begins to actually do surgery on our hearts. So he says in the last chunk of text, Pastor Rory covered last week, that you have heard that it was said, don't murder right? But I'm telling you, Jesus says that it's not just about murder, but it's about what's actually happening in your heart. That a person who's angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. What is Jesus doing there? He's saying that murder springs out of an angry heart. And until we've dealt with the angry heart, we're not actually going to be able to deal with the fruit of murder. Now, in these next couple sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to deal with an issue that touches all of us in really deep and really profound ways. He touches the area of our sexuality. And I'll just say 
that sometimes as a staff, we'll like sit around and we'll go, you know, like what are like the areas where we need to like create some discipleship experiences for people? And maybe we could have like a seminar on marriage and a seminar on singleness. And maybe we could have a little side class on our sexuality and all of that. And so we'll always be kind of like in my office, you know, up at New Life North scheming about these things. And then all of a sudden you're just like reading the Bible and it's like Jesus kind of just lobs one up to you, you know, like here, how about when the whole church is together, we talk about these things. And so uh, I'm going to spend the next couple weeks in these little chunks of text here talking about uh, sexuality, marriage, singleness, all of that. It'll be fine for your kids to be in the room, by the way, in case any of you are very concerned about that. Everything's going to be perfectly great. We're just going to talk about what Jesus speaks to us about these matters. And so I'll be in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. If you're there, holler at me and say I'm there. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, Jesus says, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, Lord and life giver. We thank you that you are here just as we sang. You're here with us now. You're here with us now. And so we say, Spirit of God, fall Upon us. Nobody can do the will of God unless the Spirit motivates it. So we say, Spirit, come and teach us what is the will of God and then help us carry it out in our lives. Nobody can even see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless they're born anew. And so we say, Spirit of God, help us see the kingdom of God and give us hearts to walk in the kingdom of God. We pray that all that is spoken this morning would be clear. The psalmist said, I run in the path of your commands for there I find delight. I pray that your commands this morning, Lord Jesus, would be a delight to us and that we would find that in all the places where we're stumbling and we're falling, that we would be set free to run in the path of the commands of God, that our lives would flourish, that we wouldn't stumble, but that we'd walk boldly into the kingdom, boldly into our own humanness. Come, we pray, and help us. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. And all God's people said. There it is. Okay. Jesus opens his teaching here, verse 27, by saying, uh, you have heard that it was said. You know what I think the big problem with our culture and with really large swaths of the church actually is? Most actually haven't heard that it was said. <laughs> and so Jesus is presuming a kind of knowledge about human sexuality that comes out of the scriptures that most of us haven't heard. And so here he is kind of taking us into the trigonometry of sexuality when most of us haven't even finished basic algebra yet. We're totally unfamiliar with it. And so there is this need, I think, in our culture and the church in our day, really to go back to the biblical imagination of sexuality and to try to set down some of the things that the scripture actually teaches. In the biblical imagination, our sexuality is a gift from God. 
Can I get an amen from somebody? Oh, it is. It's a gift from God. It's actually, uh, when you look at it, it's an intrinsic part of our humanness. It's not something that's kind of over here or off to the side, but it's built into the very fabric of who we are as human beings. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Then what does the text say? Male and female, he created them and God blessed them and said to them, be, what does the text say there? Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And so here is God making mankind in his own image. And when it begins to talk about what mankind looks like, right from the get-go, we're stipulated as male and female. That it's male and female together that make up the complete image of God in the world, in our maleness and in our femaleness. So, of course, as individuals, we all image God individually. But here, it's really the whole total humanity thought of as male and female that comprises a, a living, breathing image of God. But the second thing to notice about this text, though, in Genesis, and this, I think, is just so wildly profound, is that God actually installs the very power of life itself in their sexuality. He says to them, uh, blessed, like he blesses them and says to them, be what? Fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There's a sense in which our sexuality is a kind of participation in God's own life. Think about that. That what the creator has done is he's actually taken the power for life itself and he's woven it into human flesh so that that original creative miracle actually takes place through human beings. And it's worth just pointing out that it didn't have to be that way. That God could have set things up so that when we needed more human beings, that they floated down out of the sky, like the stork or whatever. Or it could have been that when we needed human beings, that it's like the original creative miracle. And God said, right, let there be babies. Bang, and there are babies. There, but God hasn't done it that way. The way that God has set things up is that somehow life actually is channeled through the human frame itself. And I think that there are, um, it's all purely speculation. Like, why did God do it this way? But I do think that it's probably fair to say that one of the reasons that God set things up this way is that this actually mirrors God's own life. Think about who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one God in three persons. And somehow life itself is contained in the very multiplicity of God. And I think that male and female together, man and woman coming together and creating new life, that that's an image of God, that there's multiplicity inside this unity that is fruitful. It gives rise to something. Mandy and I have four kids together, and I will never forget my last year of uh, seminary. We'd been married for about five years or so. And we always said that, like, as soon as I was done with seminary, that's kind of when we wanted to start trying, you know, to have kids. That felt like good timing. Let's get out of school and all of that. And so I remember fall of my last year of seminary, uh, we had the conversation, like we had heard that sometimes it takes a little bit, you know, to get pregnant. Now, when you start trying, and so we looked at each other and we said, okay, is it time? Should we, you know, and that way, you know, if we can, 
get pregnant sometime in the near future, then we'll be, you know, after seminary and all of that. And uh, my big joke is that the next day we were pregnant. Uh, But I'll never forget finding out that we were pregnant. Fridays were like kind of our chill day. I was off of school. Mandy was off of work. And uh, I went for a long run on this one particular Friday. And Mandy went out running some errands. And she came back from running errands. And we were both kind of dinking around the house a little bit. And I hear her call, and she goes, hey, Andrew, can you come over here? I go, sure. And she shows me a pregnancy test, and it's got the... And I will never forget the electric rush of adrenaline in my body. A human person we made. A human person. And just like it felt like... Well, it felt like touching the core of life itself or sticking your finger in the electric socket or something. I'll just never forget that. I wandered around for 24 hours with this smile on my face. You know, people must have thought I was on drugs or something like that. And, but I also remember looking at my wife with new eyes, you know. Uh, we'd been together for five or six years at that point. But now there's like this new dimension to our relationship. I think that that's part of what's happening in Genesis, Then God said, the God who is one God in three persons, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Let them rule, male and female. He created them. Be fruitful and multiply. Somehow our sexuality is a participation in God's own life, which means that it is beautiful. Everybody say our sexuality is beautiful. It's okay. It's not dirty to say that. You're going to be fine. Our sexuality is beautiful. Sometimes I think in the history of the church, uh, we have denigrated our sexuality. In fact, there have been some streams of Christian thinking that has said that the fall actually took place through our sexuality. And there have been some streams of Christian spirituality that have said that the closer, if we want to climb up the ladder and get closer to God, that we have to deny our sexuality in some way. And I think that that is just wrong to the core. I think that that's biblically false. Our sexuality is an intrinsic part of our humanness. So it's beautiful, but it's also extremely powerful. If our sexuality is a participation in God's creative gesture, then it's very powerful. And the whole will of God for our sexuality, therefore, is to preserve it and to protect it so that we can flourish inside of it the way that God intends. And that's really what the institution of marriage is designed to do. Scripture says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become, can anybody finish it? One flesh. That's what marriage is doing. Marriage is like, creating this set of covenants, a commitment around that power so that that power can move in the direction that God has assigned to it and not overflow its banks and destroy things. That's also what the law was designed to do. Think about the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you know. And I think that sometimes when we hear the Bible's requirements on our sexuality, we go, you know, the Bible is just so fussy, about sex and desire and all of that. And why can't we do just a little bit more like live and let live? And why is the Bible trying to rob us of fun? And why is the Bible trying to rob us of pleasure? And it makes me think of that great moment in the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is taking the ring of power from Bilbo. And he's like, we got to like do something with this so that this doesn't destroy you. You remember? And Bilbo gets all flustered and frustrated about that. Like, that's my ring. Give it back to me. And do you remember what Gandalf says to him? I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you 
But that's what the scriptures are doing for us with respect to our sexuality. They're trying to help us. They're trying to protect us. The question is, why would our sexuality need to be protected? What does it need to be protected from? And the obvious answer in the scriptures is that our sexuality needs to be protected from the life-destroying, life-distorting power of sin. And when you think about it, I'm actually willing to bet that most of us, if not all of us, who are sitting in this room have been touched at some point in our lives by brokenness in the area of our sexuality. Few sin distortions, I think, touch our humanity as deeply or as destructively as this one. That same power for life that is beautiful and that gives rise. It's like an ongoing continuation of God's creative gesture. When it goes sideways, it goes very badly sideways and it's very wounding. I think about a close friend of mine over 20 years ago, one of, uh, one of his parents, his dad, was embroiled in a nine-month or so affair. And when they found out about it, it just about blew the family to smithereens. And they spent so much time and effort and energy trying to put things back together. And thanks be to God, the family has come back together and it survived that affair. And we give thanks to God for that because God is a God who is able to raise the dead and to make new things out of things that have gone sideways. And yet, the scars for that and the ramifications of that, they remain. Over 20 years later, that is still a thing in their family's history that has to be dealt with. Or I think about New Life Church here. Some of you that are familiar with the story, our founding senior pastor about 17 years ago was caught in sexual sin that became a great public scandal. And that scandal quite nearly took this church under that it wasn't just this private affair between two people, but it was a thing that spilled out and touched all of these lives. Again, that same power for life that God has given to be part of the creative gesture. When it goes sideways, it destroys and distorts and diminishes human life. Think about the people that I have sat with over the years that were snagged up in pornography addictions. My goodness gracious the way that that conquers the mind and skews relationships and the way that even the pornography industry has become this multi-billion dollar industry that's destroying human lives. Or I think about several years back when Me Too kind of caught our culture by storm and then Church Too. Dear Lord in heaven, if you want to go cry your eyes out for an hour, go look up hashtag Church Too on Twitter and read those stories about things that have taken place in the house of God. Distortions of our sexuality are everywhere. The question is, how will the plague be stopped? What will save our sexuality? Let's hear the text again one more time. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that anybody who looks at a woman or a man... The sword cuts both ways. Lustfully has already committed adultery in his, where? In his heart. And so if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, let's just observe this, didn't think that the law was bad. Remember what he said in the text that we looked at two weeks ago. I have not come, he says, to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to, to fulfill them. 
So Jesus didn't think that the law was bad. He just thought that the law didn't cut quite deep enough. It addressed us at the level of our actions, but it didn't address us at the level of the heart. It didn't address our responsibility for our desires. So Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman or a man, another person lustfully, do you know what the Greek literally means there? It means to look upon another person to desire, in order to desire. That is to say, it's trying to address intent, the intent of our hearts. If, we could say it this way, that if sexual sin is the fruit, then wayward desire is the root. Y'all got that? If sexual sin is the fruit, wayward desire is the root. And so Jesus tells us to gouge it out. And that's, by the way, the meaning of the cutting out of the, the gouging out of the eye and the cutting off of the hand. He literally does not mean gouge out your eye or cut off your hands. Do you know how we know this? Because the sin did not originate with the eye or with the hand. Work with the metaphor here, ladies and gentlemen. Where did the sin originate? Right. It's never your eye and it's never your hand that leads you into sin. What leads you into sin? Your heart, your desires. Those are the things that lead you into destruction. And I think... That that is a word for all of us, not just married people. The question is, how are you handling your relationship with your desires, your longings, your ache? What are you doing with all of that? Two weeks ago, we looked at the proverb that said, Proverbs 4.23, keep thy what? Keep thy heart with all Diligence, because from it flows the issue of life. Or Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. The whole promise of the new covenant and the whole challenge of the gospel is to open up our hearts, our desires to the living God. And this ought to make us think about some of the lies, I think, that we're told in our culture. Like one of the great lies that we hear in our culture, I think that this is responsible for much mayhem in the area of our sexuality, is one of the things that you'll hear people say is that the heart wants what? The heart wants what the heart wants. And the message there is that you can't really do anything about your desires, right? I can't do anything about my desires. If my longings are in this direction, I can't do anything about that. If my desires are in this direction, I can't really do anything about that because the heart wants what the heart wants. And therefore, whatever the heart wants, whatever the heart desires, is more or less okay. And usually the caveat that we attach to that is that so long as nobody else is hurt. But other people are always implicated in our sexuality, Martin Luther King Jr. in his great letter from a Birmingham prison once wrote that whatever happens to one of us happens to all of us because we're tied up in a network of mutuality and inescapable destiny together. There is no such thing as private sin. All sin is public sin in its way because we're all woven together as one humanity. So here's an example of how this works, you know, like the heart wants what the heart Once, when a mom and a dad sit down in front of their kids and they say, you know, mommy and daddy aren't really in love with each other anymore. We fell out of love. 
Or mommy and daddy, even worse, mommy and daddy love new people now. And therefore our family is going to take a different shape. Let's just say this. Christians don't talk like that. We don't just assume this kind of lordship of our desires over our lives and go, well, you know, I know I had a good thing going on with this person over here, but things have kind of taken a turn and all of a sudden the heart wants something else. And so I guess I just have to go along with that. Christians don't talk like that. This is what the Bible teaches about our desires, that the heart indeed wants what the heart wants. And the advent of the Spirit in our lives means that God, by the power of the Spirit, is teaching our hearts to want the right things. So yeah, married people, you might have a moment where you wake up and you go, well, mommy and daddy kind of fell out of love. Great. Nobody cares. I'm serious. Our God in heaven, he doesn't count the strength of your marriage by the strength of your love. He counts the strength of your marriage by the vow that he made to the two of you when you made vows to one another. And if you'll take that dead desire that you have, oh, I don't know if we love each other anymore. Great. Give that to God. I've got news for you. I don't know if you know this, but our God is the one who raises the dead. So you take your dead little desire for one another and you give that over to the Lord of the resurrection and you watch what he will do with it. The spirit trains us to want rightly. We don't just give free reign to our desires, but we submit our desires. You ever read the book of Romans chapter eight? Paul says the mind that's set on the flesh, it's death. But the mind that's controlled by the spirit is life and peace. We surrender to the spirit. The spirit leads us to desire rightly. And we find that our lives are fruitful just because we've done that. So what does that look like? I've got a few minutes left here. To the married people among us, let me say this to you. Number one, learn to set your desire on your spouse. You set your desire. I say that intentionally. You set your desire upon your spouse. You don't just assume that if it's really love, I'm just always going to have gooey feelings for you all the time. Mandy and I have been married for going on 23 years. We have sometimes had gooey feelings for each other. And sometimes not. (laughs) And if our marriage depended on the state of our desires from one day to the next, we would have been divorced a long time ago. Just telling that to you. But we have learned to set our desire on one another. If you wander around my life, you'll see it. There are pictures of Mandy everywhere. On my phone, on my desk, in my office, in our bedroom, everywhere. I am seeing this woman and I'm cultivating desire for her. And so that's one of the ways that we do it. We take a weekly date. Married people, do that, please. Please. (laughs) You got to see each other. We'll go on a date. We'll go to Abby's Irish Pub over there on Friday afternoons. And all the chaos that we have in our lives, we have three teenagers. Chaos. And pastoring a congregation and being in our 40s and lots of stuff to manage. And we'll gouge this hour out of our week where we're sitting across the table from each other and asking, how are you doing? How is it with you? What's going on in your soul? Trying to open that door so that we can see each other. I'll ask her so often, 
I'll go, babe, are there things that you need from me that I'm not giving to you? And are there things that I'm doing that are frustrating to you? Please, would you tell me? And we find, and sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes those dates are amazing. A lot of times they're super mundane. But somehow what that does is that keeps desire fresh. You know, another thing I do that cultivates desire in our relationship, many of you don't do this. Uh, It's astonishing to me that we don't. But I pray about our marriage. And I don't just pray, Lord, help us get along with one another. Do you know what I pray? God, would you awaken desire in us for each other? Lord, would you help us see each other with the same kind of eyes that we saw each other with when we were 18 and we were crazy in love? Would you give us that? Oh, God, would you knit our hearts together as one, knit our affections together as one? Because, God, I know that when this relationship is right, then that's going to have an impact on our kids and on the church and on everything. But also you love this relationship and you're blessing this relationship. So please pour your spirit out on it. Married people, you're going to have to fight for this. You're also going to have to catch the little foxes. That comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil and ruin the vineyards. You're going to have to release bitterness and unforgiveness. You're going to have to be quick to deal with offense with one another. You're going to have to be quick to say, I'm sorry. Some of you have a real problem with this. You've been married for two decades and you never said, I'm sorry. You've only said things like, I'm sorry you feel that way about this thing that I did. Not an apology. Not an apology. I'm sorry is I did these things and I recognize that they hurt you. Please forgive me. Try it sometime. It'll work wonders on your relationship. And then I think that you have to violently nail wayward desires to the cross. And you are going to have moments when you catch little moments of infatuation with somebody other than your spouse and all of that. You don't have to panic or freak out, but you do have to take this thing and go, that will lead me astray if this is not dealt with. And so you nail it to the cross upon which the king of glory died for your salvation. A promise that if you do those things, it will keep your marriage fresh. To the single people among us, let me say this, and I'll have more to say about singleness next week. But I just want to say to you that we see you. We see you. And God sees you. And God knows the challenge of living with sexual desire that cannot be obviously or immediately be satisfied. And so let me just say to you that you need to keep submitting your sexual desire to God. Don't give it free reign. Uh, Don't settle for cheap substitutes, things like pornography or extramarital sex or anything like that. And don't, please, please, I'm begging you, do not buy into the lie that says that you aren't living a fully human life unless your sexual desires are gratified. Do I need to say that again? It's a lie. And it's one of the great lies of our culture that says that we're not living a fully human life unless somehow we've got a place where our sexual desires are being satisfied. And do you know how I know that's a lie? Because the greatest human being who ever lived, who lived the fullest human life that could ever be lived, was single. 
And he knows what to do with our sexual desires because he is both the second person of the Trinity and the Lord of the cosmos. And he is also our great high priest who knows what it's like to live in a human body. Jesus can be trusted with your desires if you'll just surrender them to him. One more thing I'll say and then we'll go to communion. There are some of you that are with us this morning and you have made a huge mess out of your sexuality. You're snagged up in pornography. You're in relationships that you shouldn't be in. Activities that you know are wounding you. And I want to say something to you. We have sometimes in the church made sexual sin the most heinous sin that can be committed. And it's not. Not by a mile. Do you know who Jesus was the toughest on in the Gospels? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The people that thought they had it all together. Do you know who Jesus was the most merciful with in the Gospels? People that had made a hot mess out of their sexuality. And you know what he'd say to them? Come and drink of the living water. God is right here and he's right now and he's for you if you'll just run to him. Can you receive that this morning, church? Can we stand and prepare our hearts for communion here? And can we now begin to welcome the presence of the living one into our hearts and into our desires? If you're standing next to your spouse and your kids, I want you to hold hands with them. And so we thank you. Oh, Lord, our God, that our sexuality is not an accident. It's a gift from God. It is how any of us are here. And we thank you that now, even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are invading the spaces of our desires. And you're lifting those desires up into the light of your presence. You're sanctifying them. You're making them holy. And you're guiding them into what is right. And so I pray for every married person in this room. I'm praying that you would turn the hearts of husbands to their wives and the hearts of wives to their husbands and the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. We pray that our homes would be a place where the triune God is bodied forth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an unbroken circle of passionate love, I pray that each one of the homes that are represented in this house this morning would become that. And I pray for all of the single people in our midst that are wrestling with their singleness and their desires. And I don't know what to do with these, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father. I pray that you give them the courage to yield those desires to you, to give them to you, and to find that there's a satisfaction in God that outpaces any satisfaction that we can experience in the body. Grant that we're praying, oh God. And then I pray for all of us who are touched by sexual brokenness, either our own or somebody else's. Fall like rain, Holy Spirit. Come and cleanse. Come and renew. Come and heal, we pray. Come and restore. We're trusting you with our bodies. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, Lord Jesus, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, Jesus Christ, son of the father. Now we pray that by your spirit, you would take this bread and this cup, that you would bless it, that you would break it, that you would give it to us. And that somehow inside of it, we'd find ourselves renewed again as the sanctified body of Christ, baptized by the Spirit to become the people of God once again. Grant this, we're praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. I'm gonna invite our servers to come forward this morning to serve communion. Four communion stations up front, you'll exit on your row, uh, exit your row on your right and then come forward and receive a communion cracker. You'll dip it in the cup and you'll take it on the way back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.